Hello, welcome to Relatable. This is your host, Teresa Freeman. How do I introduce this next guest? It's very exciting. We have our first commercial pilot on the show, Rob Evers. In fact, not just a pilot, but a captain. We talk about what really happens in the cockpit, what it really means when they ask the flight attendants to sit down, and should we be concerned with turbulence? Even more interesting is Rob's story and how he persevered to follow his dream of becoming a pilot when there was a lot standing in his way. Rob's positivity is infectious and his commentary so insightful. I guarantee that time will fly by as you're entertained by this conversation. See what I did there? Fly by. Enjoy this episode. Well, I, you're going to have to forgive me because Please, no, I have so many pilot questions that okay, I want to ask you. And so if it's too much or it's at nauseum, no. you have to let me know. Uh, no, because you and I have had conversations uh, before and <laughs> let's continue. And there's no, 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 no. Because the thing is, no, here's the deal. So I love what I do. And I'm so fortunate that I get to do this. Yeah. That when I meet someone who's interested or has questions about what I do, I, I'm almost like I can overwhelm them with and then and then and then and I don't want to be that guy, so ask away. Okay. First, I mean, gosh, where do I start? Okay. First, well, first, before we even get to what you do, um, mm-hmm. one of the things I wanted to ask you about, I'm just going to come out of the gate. We're going to just go big right here at the beginning. Go. Go get them, girl. Okay. <laughs> so I think one of my first questions for you is, you are one of the most positive like high energy people that I think I've ever met. And I know a lot of people. Like I'm I'm wow, I know I'm, people. Let me just say. I got a big old I'm, network. I'm flattered and blown away by that compliment. Thank you. No, I'm serious. And so I do. I really feel like every time I meet you or every time we've chatted, I always feel like there's just this overwhelming positive energy. And I'm curious for you if that's something you were born with. Is, have you always been like that? Is that something that you have cultivated over time? And so that's one question. And then and then beyond that, I think, because I think I'm just, I'm taking a leap and I'm going to associate that positive energy. Do you have any rituals, habits, right? Anything that you do regularly that helps you to stay in, stay in this kind of headspace? I do. Uh, let me back up. Yeah. The positivity, yeah. I think, has come from... Uh, my mother, I'm very close uh, to my mom, and she and I have a younger sister, two years younger, and my dad. There were some speed bumps along the way during my early childhood, and I think that it was formative in the sense that I was able to, okay, well, this is what's going on, but we're going to have something better ahead. And I think my mom was such a positive influence on that. The funny thing is about positivity is that it's a choice. It's you can, at least for me, is that I can look at all of the dark stormy clouds to use a cheesy, cheesy pun (laughs) and cliche associated with my business. And I can see them or I can see the bright blue sky behind it. 
Right. So if I look at those dark stormy clouds in my life or in my profession or in, well, especially now, any anybody right. could. I mean, it's so easy to get caught up in the negativity. Then that's what I'm going to focus on. And it's so easy to get, to get fearful and completely sucked into that. Or you can see the bright, bright blue sky behind it and you aim for that. And so that's what I've always tried to do. And I think it becomes habitual and... You know, I hope I don't come off at of Pollyanna because there there are bad there are bad days and there's bad things sure. that are go on and uh, and everybody has their challenges of varying degrees and everybody's going through something right now and I think for me the way I look at my positivity is that I try to find the good and and see the beauty in things that maybe are in the background you know what I mean and then it can focus on that and so I think uh, for me the the thing that has always been kind of habitual. Aside from coffee. No, I'm just kidding. The coffee started when my kid showed up because uh, he just as normal kids do, you know, one to sleep when you're awake and vice versa. I think exercise, um, I've always tried to do something uh, physical. I love to cycle. Um, I'm a terribly slow runner, but something just to get outside and or inside now if, if I can't go outside and just to burn off some sweat and focus on doing something that may seem simple, like a, you know, a 30 or 45 minute jog or a spin. And then that just gets your blood flowing. And the rest of the day, it's like, Hey, look, I did that. You mm-hmm. know, uh, it also helps. It, it helps with my wacky schedule at work and stuff is that I know if I don't exercise, I don't sleep well and nobody wants a sleepy pilot, just not a good thing. So yeah, <laughs> I hope that answers the question. I, I, it does. Yeah. It does answer the question. I, I guess I would ask you without going, you know, we don't have to go too deep on that, but you talked about, oh my God. You talked about in terms of earlier on, like there were some difficulties. Mm-hmm. So would there t- were there times where the positivity was not necessarily inherent and you found it based on difficulties, right? Or, I mean, you mentioned that your mom was also a, a role model. It's, it's interesting because mm-hmm. my husband and I have this conversation a lot about like, I'm also a fairly positive person. I'm pretty mm-hmm. like chipper. <laughs> And I, and I have been, like, my mom says that she almost named me Joy because mm-hmm. I was just, as a baby, like, you know, I would be, like, drenched, like, to the point where the diaper was dripping and she would come in and I would just be all smiles that someone was there to help me. <laughs> like, it was just this, like, and I feel so, I'm so grateful for that because I don't know that I've had to work at that. Um, right. And I feel like there are some people that, outside of those being clinically depressed or real issues. I don't, you know, but, but just right. you know, kind of normally able to wake up and kind of be like, yeah, I'm going to see the blue sky. I am going to see, and I don't know that everybody has that. And I, and I don't know that there's always a recipe for it other than yes, there are times when it is challenging and it is a choice. Yeah. And then sometimes yeah. it feels for me quite like, honestly, it's, it's not so much a choice. I'm just lucky to have this kind of DNA. So that's I'm fortunate yeah. as well. And I, I I feel the same way is that I don't feel like I gotta lace up my positivity in the morning. You know, is <laughs> right. that it's it's just right. I'm fortunate that I, you know, I think my faith also is a big part of who I am. Mm-hmm. I feel comfortable knowing that I don't make everything happen. And once I release that, that I don't have to worry about things outside of my reach, yeah. gosh, it's easier to to deal with stuff that's going on. And I, I mean I've had to reset that a hundred times over during certainly over the last year with COVID things that I have the the sphere of influence and it's something I talk about a lot at work with the folks I work with and folks I train is that our influence as pilots 
really is the footprint of the airplane that we fly. And if I have a positive outcome on the folks that I'm working with, the people that I carry, the people who are directly responsible for that safe flight, and I'm just the captain of the flight, all of that comes together to be successful. And if I forget that I'm responsible for that, it's not going to go well, obviously. But also, if I start getting distracted by things outside of my realm, then I don't do what I'm supposed to be doing well, you know? So that's where I think that positivity comes in. And again, it's just you roll out of bed with it and you you go forward. I'm very fortunate that, like you said, it's 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 in my DNA as well. Yeah. And I think once you age, part of that is finding these other things that help continue that. So to your point around exercise and mindfulness, and there's all these mm-hmm. other things that I think right. help to continue that along or help you maintain it. I, you joked in the beginning in terms of you being a pilot. So you're my first mm-hmm. pilot interview. Hey, um, cool. I do have some other pilots in my life that I feel like I need to mention just because if they listen to this and they're they're going to, you know, I'm going to get some grief that that I also <laughs> mentioned them. So my brother-in-law is a pilot. Okay. He is a pilot right. like, for his personal, he has a, his personal use, but he is a pilot. Okay. And then even mm-hmm. my nephew, his son also has his pilot's license. So I do. Fantastic. Yeah, I do have some pilot people. Oh, and then, oh my gosh, I can't not mention my friend Paul, who you met. Um, who I mm-hmm. think you guys got along really well. Yeah. Um, he's, he was really, also, really nice guy. yeah, a really great guy. And he is, uh, was in uh, California and also did mm-hmm. like flight training and stuff like that. He's not so much, you know, practicing these days, but these are all the pilots of my life. And so I have these kind of conversations with them all the time, but you're my first commercial pilot and, and like the okay. first person I've spoken to that it's your career. So I think my first question is, did you mm-hmm. always want to be a pilot? And is that I did. you did always. And mm-hmm. so tell me a little bit then about the path to becoming a pilot yes. and what that's like. So I wanted to, ever since I was a little kid, I remember my parents would give me, you know, the model airplanes and I would spend all my allowance at the, the hobby shop in Springfield mall where everybody else was at, you know, orange Julius and making <laughs> mall laps. I was the dorky kid in the back trying to find the perfect model and the right exacto knife and all that stuff. I think my parents were worried I was going to live with them until I was 50, uh, <laughs> given my fixation with airplanes and such. And I was a kid that rode his bike to National Airport and sat out there in Gravely Point or at the observation area at the old terminal and you know watched the airplanes come and go. And then this movie came out in the 80s called Top Gun, a small <laughs> film released just in a couple theaters. And I thought for sure that I was going to be the guy riding his oh, yeah. motorcycle down the side of the runway, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. high five and his buddies playing volleyball and all that stuff. All greased up. And so, oh yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and I was fortunate because my mom uh, was a civil servant, worked in the department of the Navy and the Pentagon. So I was around people that had the military background and specifically people that in, were in military naval aviation. And it's fascinating, hung on their every word you know, guys that were friends of my families and people that my mom worked with. But there was this stinking problem called an astigmatism. Uh-huh. And in 1980 something, yeah, the military, specifically the Navy and the Air Force, had such a glut of young men and women that wanted to learn how to fly. And so Because of that I, movie, right? I'm sorry? Because of that movie. I think a big part of it was that, yeah. And I think it just, you know, it was 
oh my gosh, how would you not want right. to do that for a living? Yeah, so cool. So I uh, I talked to a couple of recruiters and with B minus grades and astigmatism, I wasn't going to make the cut. So I was just completely devastated. And I'd, you know, I'd read everything I could about becoming a military aviator. And then I realized, well, okay, that's not going to work. So let me punt and do something different. So I started to look at learning how to fly uh, commercially or privately, you know, using flying lessons and civilian flying. And there are a number of universities throughout the country that have programs where you go and get an undergraduate degree and you take traditional classes and then you take uh, aviation specific classes and then you have labs which you learn how to fly. So I started looking at those colleges and one of the colleges I looked at was in Melbourne, Florida. Uh, it was called Florida Institute of Technology. Now it's called Florida Tech. And they had a program that you could do just that. It was commercial aviation. Well, I was concerned that I wouldn't be able to become an airline pilot again because of uh, my, my vision's not bad. It's like 2030. But at the time, it seemed like it was 2300. So this university had a program where there were other programs. Uh, one of them that interested me was naval architecture. I've always loved the sea and I took some drafting classes in college or in high school, and I thought, okay, that'll be what I do, but maybe I can take flying lessons just for fun. So I went to school down there, and in my first semester, I was starting down the road of the traditional, you know, uh, programs, and one of my buddies from high school and neighbor was in the flight program, and he was taking flying lessons, and and I'm like, hey, man, that's so great. I, you know, it would be great if I could, you know, come out to the airport and hang out. He's like, why don't you just come up with me and, you know, take a ride? And I was like, can I do that? And he's like, yeah, sure. I'll just ask my instructor. And little airplane, little four-seat airplane, about the size of a uh, you know, small sedan. And his instructor's like, are you in the flight program? And I totally lied. And I said, oh, absolutely. Yeah, you bet I am, sure. So she started answering me, asking me questions. And I started giving her answers back because I had been reading about aviation since I was a kid. Right. And she said, wow, yeah, really good, you know, whatever. And my buddy Craig was like, dude, you know this stuff. And I said, yeah, but I can't fly because I wear glasses. He's like, you can wear glasses and fly. And that changed everything. Wow. So I switched, from, I switched from major, went into the commercial aviation program. And that was in 1990, 1991. Gulf War One had just started and the airlines just started to contract. And I was under the impression when I started school there that after four years, you'd come out and you go straight to an airline as a as a junior second officer on an airplane and worked your way up. Right. That happened for a very small number of people, but for the majority of the folks, it, it wasn't possible because everything is based on the you know supply and demand. And at the time, Eastern Airlines was shutting down, Pan Am shut down, the, the economy was in bad shape, not unlike today, unfortunately. Yeah. And so the need for commercial pilots was very small. Well, I was reading everything I could about this and I thought, okay, wait a minute. If I spend all this money on school, which I didn't have, if I spend all this time getting all my licenses and everything and I come out, I'm going to be burdened with debt and probably not have a job. So I, my folks and I decided I would drop out of school and come home. And so I moved back into Fairfax where I grew up uh, reluctantly and I was kicking and screaming because it, you know, 18, when you have everything figured out, yeah. you got your path set and everything, that that's what you're going to do. Right. Uh, I moved I moved back in with my mom and dad and um, went to work for my father who ran a car dealership. And the deal was, is that if I moved back in and went to work for him, I could sell cars and any of the money I would make, I could put towards flying lessons. 
And I thought, oh, this is going to be so lame. This is the worst thing ever to happen to me. But it was the best thing that ever happened because I was able to work half a day and then sell cars. And it's funny, as an 18-year-old kid selling Buicks in 1990, it just doesn't add up. But I got to talk to people from all walks of life. I got to learn about folks different. I mean, it was, and I was just thrust into a situation where I didn't have a choice, but I had to make the best of it. And it turned out that I learned so much during that time, not just with learning how to fly in the DC area, which led to all kinds of other great stuff, but just taking a really, what I thought was going to be a, you know, the end of my career and the end of my life. And I was going to go down in a spiral that I could turn it around and, you know, end up becoming, it, it basically made all the difference. So I got the rest of my flying licenses and ratings, and then I started teaching. And a young pilot has a couple different ways that they can build experience. And everything is based on experiencing and licensing and everything else. And at that time, the majority of young civilian commercial pilots or commercial pilot wannabes would start teaching. And it's kind of like if you just graduated high school and then you went back after, you know, you finish your senior year and you go back and you teach your junior year to peers right. just a couple years behind right. you. So it's the, you were a student 15 minutes ago and now you're a teacher. <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of what yeah. it was. But it was cool because that same experience I had selling cars with my dad with dealing with people who were older because they were, you know, 40, 50, whatever years old, which, you know, when you're 18 or 19 or 20 years old, you think they're ancient. Right. Um, now, now I'm looking at that. I realized that's not so not old. old. What are you talking no. about? No, come be talking about. Yeah. What are you, but it was great because the folks teaching how to fly were in that same demographic. There were business people who, or all walks of life. I mean, there were moms, there were business people. There were, there was one guy who was a, a clergyman. It was great. And everybody had different backgrounds, but they all were interested in learning how to fly. And here I was this young kid and I had the ex- somewhat of the experience, but I had a licensing to train them. That's when I really started to learn about aviation and really started to learn about flying was by teaching. And can, it was formative. It just was great. Can I ask a question about the your freshman yeah. year in college? So you, yeah, it was like, had you even completed a semester? Did you finish your first year? Yes, I did. I, so I finished the first semester in, in oceanography was the, was what the major was going to be. Right. And then I switched over to professional aviation the second semester of we were on quarters, but essentially yeah. second semester of my freshman year. And then I stayed in Florida through midway through my sophomore year. Wow. So I'd done essentially a year in the commercial aviation. I got my primary training in uh, at FIT in Melbourne, Florida, which was great because it set a baseline for kind of a professional right. way of, of teaching and learning. And that's what I that's what I knew. And I had my, my first license was a private license that I received down there. And then the rest of my flight training and, and flying ratings, I, I, at least for the, um, up to flight instructor and such were done in this area in the DC area. I, you know, I love that you share that part of your story because I feel like there's so many things that don't quite work out the way we want them to when, especially given your, explanation about how much you loved it and and that was your life and that's what you wanted to do and then to be so close to it and then not Mm -hmm. be able to do that is hard and the fact that you were able to 
rebound. And I think your point about sometimes you don't have a choice, but then what do you do in the wake of that? So I love that that you shared that part of your story and, and that pivot that you had to do. And I, you know, I, I, it's funny, I'm reading this book on entrepreneurship right now. And um, one of the things was around sales. And if you like mm-hmm. stop saying that you wish you could do, like you wish you could have your business, but not have to sell because a lot of people aren't comfortable <laughs> in sales and I'm learning that myself. And so the fact that you were thrust into that at that age, I feel like what a great learning experience. I mean, you obviously get to know people on a level that like what motivates them, what interests them, like how to persuade them. I mean, what, what great skills those are to have. And then meanwhile, you know, being able to develop this technical expertise, that's pretty cool. It, I owe a lot to it to my dad. Um, my father was a master salesman. He yeah. was in the car business for a long time. And it was funny, if you met him, he could come off as kind of a gruff and impersonal person, but he was this warm, big, unbelievably wonderful guy. But the one thing he taught me was, look, just sell the car. Don't sell the price. And you can take that, and I car business is crazy and nobody likes to buy a car, but you could take that and you can transfer it to other parts of your life is just sell the flying lesson. Or, and, and especially it's easy to sell something that you love. Yeah, It's hard to sell something you don't. Like when, when I was 18 or 19 years old, selling a 1991 Roadmaster wagon with fake wood <laughs> trim was not something that's sexy. And it's certainly right. not uh, something that is appealing except for the person that's buying it's interested in. So I, you know, and I knew that if I sold this car, this would translate into, I could learn how to fly a multi-engine airplane, or I could learn, I could get a couple more hours doing this. And so, and I had a good support network with my mom and dad backing me up, but also kind of saying, look, you need to do this or, or else you can't continue. And I think that it's like, okay, well, it's, it's time to swim. You know, I can sit here and doggy paddle or I can sink or I got to swim. So, and in that time that I spent doing that, made it so easy to talk to people in aviation and it's sometimes tough because you you have experience and you have knowledge about something that you're passionate about but if you can't show that you're interested and you're willing and you desire to do something those doors won't open right and and i was really fortunate because i had so many people help me out and that I had to return that over the last now 30 years of flying. It's, it's, it's what we do. Yeah. You know? It's, um, yeah. I could see that very much being a pay it forward type of profession, right? Like once you get in that elite group, right? And I think that's part of what I was thinking about this interview and talking to you. And I think that's part of the fascination is that, you know, <laughs> one of my questions is like, what really happens in the cockpit, right? Because there's like this isolated space right that like you don't unless mm-hmm. you're in it unless you're in that spot you don't really know and it's not something that everybody does or can do so i i feel like the fact that it's it is sort of this discrete group and that you had to have both from a expertise and obviously the licensing but but to your point around the relationships and the networking and being able to do that uh, well it's also the the incredible thing that i've learned over aviation and what's cool is that my my teaching has continued i've always been an instructor and and it's helped me get every job and open every door in in That's the it. business yeah. of aviation but the thing that we've we've learned over the years is that we don't make mistakes as pilots pilots because of technical deficiencies we make mistakes because of communicative issues we make mistakes because we don't assess risk we make mistakes because we aren't able to really see the stuff that 
is important and we're focused on the, the stuff that's right in front of us. Relatable is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates, your one-stop shop for soft skills development, speaking, coaching, and workshops. If you'd like to hire Teresa, visit www.teresafreemanassociates.com for more information. So I thrive in that, and I, I love the human factors aspect of it yep. and and how we can sit down and you ask what goes on in the cockpit. Did you ever drive home from college or from someplace with somebody that you kind of knew but didn't, like a road trip event? Maybe you you both lived in the same hometown, but you're driving home from college. That's what an airline pilot's week is like. It's basically two people who go to the same university that don't know each other that are hitching a ride home for Christmas. Like (laughs) you have common friends and you have common interests, but you may be from totally different ends of uh, of the age spectrum of whatever fill in whatever demographic mm-hmm. that you would like and you're tasked with getting home for the holiday you know it, but it's going to be a three-day trip or a two-day trip or whatever day trip and so you just hope that the person sitting next to you doesn't roll down the window and start smoking or changes your radio or turns it up too loud you, know, just, you just hope that there's some common you know socialization and, and, and politeness but um yeah, so, so you find common ground. That was my other question, which is mm-hmm. your, and I think I knew this, but I, I do think it's interesting that that always changes. So you never fly with right. the same people ever? Like you never come back? Not necessarily. We So our schedules, and, and this is specific to Southwest, but it's, it's common among the major airline carriers. Everything in the airline business is based on tenure and it's based on when you're hired. You can have a wonderful schedule if you were hired uh, a month before the pilot that's hired behind you and that person's working crummy trips, crummy days and everything else. And so we put in for our preferences for every month and then we're paired up with, uh, for me, I'm a captain, we paired up with a first officer. And we have so much flexibility that we're able to exchange our trips, trade our trips. If I wanna go to Denver instead of going to you know, Omaha or Miami, instead of going to Midland, I can do that. And so that's, so we end up kind of interchangeable. I'll I'll fly with a different first officer mostly every week, but um, sometimes I'll fly with the same person all month because we both like our schedules. And then you really get to know somebody Mm -hmm. because you're spending, you know, eight to 10 to 12 hours, two to three, four days a week with each other. And I've made some lifelong friends just from sitting up there in this in this little office and operate an airplane. And I mean, of course, all the safety stuff and all the procedural stuff, that's that's just assumed. You know, right. you're gonna do that right. But then once you get up away from the ground, it's, you, I, I try to make the week go by quickly by just good conversation, you know? Right. You know, hey, how was your weekend, man? What's going on with the kids? Or, uh, hey, how are your folks doing? I know you said your mom was sick or whatever. And, and then it just becomes a road trip. That's really what it becomes. And in between coffee breaks and, and, you know, and so on and so forth. So, yeah. it's um, What about the whole, you know, you have all these people's lives in your hand. Is that always, it's interesting, right? Because I think about driving a car and I think about driving my kids around and I'm responsible for their life, right? For sure. But I, I certainly don't think about that every time I go drive my car, right? So, so it's like you become proficient at something and you think you generally know what you're you're doing, I guess, right. depending on how good you are at that. 
And so is flying, I mean, flying to me, I think because it, it's still like people will say, oh, it's the safest form of travel. I don't know if that's still true, mm-hmm. right? But there's just something it about is. flying that then I would think right. as a pilot, I'm curious, like every time you fly, do you think, is that a part of it? Or is it that you're so proficient, you don't necessarily think of it in that context? I, I think you nailed it when you said that your boys are in the back of your car and you're driving them someplace. If you think about the gravity of that, it would be really hard to get out of the driveway. Right. And I I feel the same way when I've got 175 people plus uh, four flight attendants sitting behind me. I don't think about that gravity. I don't. I, I think about operating the airplane safely. Like if I did have my wife and son on board and, and that in itself is kind of funny because I fly a small airplane for recreation and every now and then I'll fly with my wife and son. And that is the most stressful flying I ever do because I want it to be perfect. Not, not that I don't want it to be perfect when you and your family are on board, that that's not it, but it's so much more like personal, maybe isn't the right word, but I, I care for the people behind me. Don't get me wrong. I mean, thank God for them because they, they're there. They're building up our business. They're going to places. They're seeing people that doing important things that connect each other in their lives. And I'm responsible for getting them there right. with, of course, a whole host of other people, which I can't, I can't tell you how many people make yeah, things happen in the right. aviation business that I'm just the person that's, you know, operating right. the aircraft with a very other skilled individual. But I don't think about the people sitting behind me because if I did, it'd be really hard to release the park and brake. It really right. would be. Right. You know, and it's funny because there have been studies that have shown after, specifically after the, the miracle on the Hudson with Sully and Jeff Skiles, yep. there was a great documentary afterwards showing how many people would have been affected if that airplane and or lives were lost. It was something, and I, I think on that A320, it was like 150 people maybe on board. It was something in the 30,000 to 40,000 number of second cousins and next door neighbors and just the spidering effect. So of course, there's some responsibility with what I do, and I, I don't take that lightly. Right. And, and to say that I don't think about the people behind me, I don't, I don't want to trivialize that. Right. But it's incredibly important because if you and your family are on board, I'm going to take good care of you. That's just it. Yeah, yeah. I think I told you this once because we were talking about fear of flying, and you know, I'm like, I will get in a plane. Like, if I want to go somewhere, I'll get in a plane. But I definitely have like when it starts the whole bouncing around thing. Um, and depending on how long that's lasting, like I'm good for like right. a little bit, but then my threshold, yeah. <laughs> if it lasts a long time, <laughs> that's when I start to get a little, little panicky. I think I told you once that I met these pilots when I was on a trip in Costa Rica, actually, they were like, there was a hotel mm-hmm. where a lot of pilots were coming in and out. And I happened to be at this hotel for a couple weeks. And, you know, they said something to me, which I feel like I should just mention here because it really helped me mm-hmm. with my flying. But then I mm-hmm. think you're going to have a perspective on this too that I think would be really helpful. But that was like, you know, remember, <laughs> it seems so simple, but like, remember, we we want to get home too. Like we, we want, we yeah. have family members and kids and parents. And so somehow you feel the disconnect, right? Between like you're back in the plane and they're up there and somehow they've got something you don't obviously but at the same time you're all kind of in it together and like they're yeah. they're going to do everything they can obviously to get where they need to go and i there was something about that that made me feel like mm-hmm. oh that's reassuring <laughs> so I, I i mean i feel remiss if i wouldn't ask you this question just for people that are super nervous or have a really hard time like what's right. what counsel do you have or what insight given it's your profession that you could share so i know i know this very 
well because my mom's a nervous flyer. And it's interesting. She's flown with me in small airplanes and then onboard aircraft I've operated and for a couple different uh, airlines and different phases of my career. And then I've had the distinct pleasure of sitting next to her as she's grabbing my arm and squeezing the ever-loving life out of me because of those couple bumps of turbulence. What I, what I tell people is that, you know, it's it, the air is, and it sounds really hokey, but it's fluid. And if you've ever been out on the water on a windy day and it's choppy, you feel the boat, you know, bouncing up and down. And we experience the same thing in aviation. And nobody likes turbulence. I mean, to say that we're up there high-fiving each other, hey, watch this, is is never the case. Right. Um, because we know that more than likely 60 to 70% of our customers are nervous and they're they don't want to be in this in this bumpy ride, and I try to miss it. Like all of us try to miss it in in commercial aviation because it's just uncomfortable. It's not damaging to the aircraft. There's just no, at least the weather that we're flying through the, the windy bumpy days. It's just uncomfortable, and I and I try to miss that by being a weather geek and looking at things right. and determining different altitudes to fly. And a lot of times we'll take different routes or different altitudes to miss the turbulence. Um, and it's gotten so much better over the last several years with technology. So we incorporate that. And then just something, just letting people know via the, the public address system, hey, it's going to be bumpy for about five or 10 minutes. We're right. doing our best to try to get a different altitude or find a better ride. You know, just make sure your seatbelts are fastened. And I think that is something that I hope helps is that to let you know it's five or 10 minutes and that we're acknowledging that this is uncomfortable and we're trying to do our best to get you out of there. But to your point about the folks that you met at the hotel in Costa Rica, I equate that to when things are really messed up with delays and the delay function of our business. The airline business is so incredibly complex and all the moving parts between personnel and equipment and weather and air traffic and all of these things that things get messed up. And, and occasionally when I have somebody who's a bit upset about us running late, I just explained, hey, I'm I'm interested in getting to Miami as well on right. time, but and or I'm interested in getting home on time. But today we're not because of this, and I'm just honest with people, you know, because that's what else can you do? Right. And and, and folks, folks that sit down on an airplane and buy a ticket relinquish control, and I think that's where most people have a difficult time and and get anxious about flying is that you're relinquishing control right. to somebody who you don't know, to somebody who you expect is technically proficient, you expect is well-rested, you expect is up for the job, but you are just, you're putting your trust in them. Right. And for a lot of folks, that's a difficult thing to do. Yeah, we try our best. That That's really what it comes down to. Um, and then what about and, when you tell the flight people, flight attendants to sit mm -hmm. down? Does that right. mean it's go time because <laughs> that's my other that's my other that's the, indicator that's, that's is when you say that's, that's, we've told them to sit down and then you're like yeah something bad is happening <laughs> that's industry jargon for put your arms and legs inside the ride that's really what it is um when we ask our flight attendants to sit down it's uh it is a i don't want to say a command it's a request of an urgent nature because we're coming into some weather that was unanticipated. An example would be in, in the spring, you know, a lot of thunderstorms start to right. brew up in different parts of the country. And if I'm what we call deviating, which is zigzagging around weather, and if I'm 
pointed away from another aircraft from air traffic control, but I'm heading towards what is a puffy white cloud. That's not going to be a comfortable ride. It's safe. The airplane's going to jostle up and down, but I don't want a flight attendant uh, to be in the aisle or be in the back galley or forward galley. And as we hit those bumps to get jostled around, because normally they're not in their jump seats. They're normally not seat belted in like, like you would be or hope that you're, you are because the seatbelt signs on. So when I ask that, I'm asking the flight attendants to get their jump seats sooner than later for their safety. Yeah. So that's, that's industry jargon for, Hey, hang on. And it happens so infrequently now because we've got better technology to see where the turbulence is. And I think, I know for me, as I've gotten older and more gray hairs and more hours in my logbook is that I'm less risk adverse. It's just, if I see a big puffy white cloud, I know that nobody wants to run through that. Now, if I don't have a choice, I don't have a choice, but if I do, I'll take the means necessary to miss them. So, yeah. And okay. One last geeky question and then I'll, I'll move on, which is around like (laughs) instruments versus you're actually flying the plane. Not to say that the instruments are not like that you're so I, I flew with my brother-in-law not that long ago he has a Cessna okay. and um yeah and so I was like but you're not really flying it right now I said, no, you're still flying it even if you're Good not question. like flying it like in like in terms of like moving a joystick or like manually right mm-hmm. so is mm-hmm. the this is my understanding of it is that the takeoff and the landing is more manual you're That's doing correct. things and then when you're right. up it's more I don't even know what that means, really, when you say instruments are flying automated. Away. It's it, yeah, it's, it's so it's on autopilot. So I fly a, a aircraft called a seven thirty seven, and then larger airplanes can auto land we, with the autopilot landing the aircraft and such. Ours has the capability, but we at Southwest don't do it. And then with your brother, the way and and I do the same thing in general aviation, smaller craft. I I use the autopilot kind of like you might in an automobile, like cruise control. Mm-hmm. Like you're going to drive through your neighborhood. But if you got out on a highway, if there was no traffic and you're going 70 miles an hour, you might set the cruise control and you're letting the automation of the car maintain the speed. We do that in the aircraft as well. And specifically when we get task loaded, when there's a lot of stuff going on, we can use the autopilot, which is what you were referring to. And that will manually, I'm sorry, that will automatically track a course, uh, both laterally and vertically to keep the airplane on the path because I might be working around trying to get around some weather because it might be really busy where I'm departing a really busy airport, you know, like Washington national or maybe Miami or whatever. And what's interesting too, is it's something that you may or may not know is that we have two pilots in the aircraft I fly. And what we'll do is one person will fly the aircraft either manually or automated. Another person will talk on their radio to air traffic control and manage the navigation manage the systems on the aircraft. So it's very much a group, Mm. Uh, group sport, if you will. Mm-hmm. So it's a cooperative effort. But we do use the autopilot uh, more than in the old days because the autopilots are more advanced. And because also the airspace is very, it, it's become more and more complicated. And a lot of that is due to environmental and noise restraints. And um, it's getting just crowded up there, right? Things. It is. It's crowded for one, but also, you know, for instance, like our hometown of, you know, DC. Washington National Airport is in a very congested area because of obviously the oh, right. you know the National Mall and the White House uh, on the east side of the Potomac River, and then on the west side, um, you know, and following up the rivers, how we depart if we're going north, we try to stay right over top of the river because that's the least amount of noise. Even though the airplanes now are so much quieter than they used to be, 
when I first started flying in and out of there as a kid, you know, we'd still go up the river, but we would, you know, zigzag a little bit. Right. Now we follow a very specific track. And a lot of times you can do that by, you know, flying the airplane manually, but it's much easier if the autopilot is doing, you kind of manage everything else that's going on. That makes sense. So you've talked so much about, I think, I mean, it just comes through as you're talking about in terms of your passion and that you love it. Maybe talk about like, what's one thing you love most about being a pilot? And then maybe what's one thing that is difficult or challenging or this frustrating, just in case people are interested in becoming a pilot. If you'd like to advertise with Relatable, please email us at info at tfreemanassociates.com. I'll start with the bad first. And, okay. and, and I want to preface that is that, uh, but it's also expectations. The tough thing about it is if you have to be at home every day or every night, you're not going to be. You have to be okay with missing certain right. things. And like I said, we have a 17-year-old son. I've been married to my wife for 20-plus years, and she's seen the good side of, of aviation. Because I did start as a young person. And so but gaining experience and, and saying yes to different jobs early on was easy because I was a young person and I had the opportunity and the ability to do that. Where the struggle is, is if you have to make every, in our case, our kid's a swimmer, every swim meet, if you have to make every you know, family event. You have to be home for every holiday. It's it's not going to happen. Now, having said that, I get a lot of time off. And so, again, it's that blue sky versus dark right. clouds. The Christmas morning when your kid's little and you've got to go to work might happen the day before. And then later when they're teenagers, they'll turn that around when you're home for Christmas and ask if we can do Christmas morning the day before because... <laughs> You know, that, that's how things work. Right. So the, that's the tough thing about it. Yeah. The tough thing about it is is knowing that you're going to miss stuff. You have to have a strong foundational base at, at home. And I do. My, my wife is amazing. And that is. things I don't have to worry about while I'm on the road. So that's the bad, nay, good. The great thing about it is the challenge. I love learning. I love getting better at this craft of aviation. And I was taught by so many wonderful, just fine people who really, really tried to make what I do an art. It, it, flying an airplane itself is very simple, very mechanical, very, anybody can do it, I promise you. If I can do it, anybody can. But to take that and to make it into something that you try to make every flight a little bit better. And there's a running joke that there's no such thing as a perfect flight. And it's the truth. Mm. We all strive for that. We all strive to have, uh, a, you know, a smooth landing and no bumps and shortcuts and save fuel and get you there early and, you know, the whole bit. There's always things along the way that, you know, that, that complicate things and how we deal with that. I love that challenge. And I love, of course, the scenery is, is you know, yeah. breathtaking. Yeah. The perspective that I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have. And uh, I would say my, that's, my favorite thing is just that challenge and then interacting with people. It's always something different. There's a, you may fly the same route. Like I've been this week, I've been flying back and forth from Baltimore to Miami and it's the same flight two or three times over, but the weather's different or I have a different cabin crew or I have a different customer that may need some extra attention or we may have a little bit of a delay or I may have a maintenance issue and how to deal with all that stuff is it's funny. I, I look at it kind of like as the challenge and, and, and kind of the joy of things. Cause how can I do it better? 
and when I'm thinking about it and do a debrief myself and I go, can I do this better next time? Mm-hmm. And that's what I try to do. It's interesting. You just mentioned something that I think it's a good segue to this question that I ask a lot of people. And I think what's it's really interesting about your line of work. So in your line of work, it seems to me that the technical capability and the precision and I think there's ma- a lot of math. I don't know. Like there, there seems to be mm-hmm. like a fair amount of sort of analytical capability that's required to be a good pilot. And and in my line of work now that's focused so much on soft skills development and so much on sort of the human skills and the people side of things, your profession, it seems like there's such this intersection of being very technical and analytical and having mm-hmm. a job that requires such such precision, which might be a certain stereotype of a person, right? That's mm-hmm. like not right. as social, not as extra, you know, I'm not saying that that's always mm-hmm. the case, but that it's, and then the, and the fact that you just talked about your, in terms of quickly have to build rapport with your unit and your crew, mm-hmm. which you may or may not know. So I just, I'm interested from your perspective, maybe being within being a pilot, I, I mean, obviously, you know, we've, we've met socially and I know how you are socially, but I'm curious with like within your profession, how important it is to have some of these social skills or soft skills, like, and what you see are important areas to develop given mm-hmm. what you're faced with in your role as a pilot. Cause it isn't so just flying the plane, uh, right? It's, oh no, the flying the plane is the easy part. The soft skills, and it's so interesting that you say that. So I, one of my jobs at Southwest Airlines, aside from being a captain, is I'm a, a Czech airman. It's essentially as an instructor, pilot, evaluator, and a, and a teacher. And one of the biggest parts, or I should say one of the biggest shifts in that evaluation over the years has been from the technical side of it. You know, the pilot that can fly that approach and landing, keeping within certain parameters, that's expected. That's not the hard part. It's the soft skills and how they assess the different issues that they're dealt with on a daily basis and how they can communicate with each other. That's what we've actually become more focused on and what the better aviator that you can be by learning how to how to hone those skills. Now, to your point, yes, it is it is a stereotype that pilots can be very technical, very black and white. This is what it is. That's the deal. But we've seen and then data has shown time and time again from accidents, incidents, different mistakes that we've made in our profession that there's this much gray. And if you could see my arms are yeah. sticking out in yeah. the end and there's a sliver of black and a sliver of white on, on that spectrum of how to operate safely. I mean, there's obviously the definitives. There's certain things you can and cannot do, right. but to operate inside the realm of doing something safely and every pilot has a different method of doing that, which is fine. If I'm flying by myself, I, I, I'm my own judge, I'm my own character. But when I'm sitting next to somebody and your family's in the back of my airplane, I've got to communicate that to the person sitting next to me. Uh, right. If I don't, I've failed. And how do I build that rapport quickly? Show up and I may not know the first officer I'm working with. I may not know the flight attendants I'm working with. Um, I say, hey, how's your day going? Mm-hmm. And then I just pause. Yeah. And that time that I just stop and just listen, and it's been even more imperative now over the last year with COVID because it's so many times I've heard that, you know, I'm, I'm really worried about my family members, my my children yeah. are, 
are struggling at school. I've got the, and it's like, okay, let's take care of each other this week, you know? And we always do, but you know, my flight attendants, Hey, how are you doing? Well, you know, I was supposed to be home last night in Houston, but the snow closed the airport, but you know, I'll get home tomorrow. It's okay. I, I think everything's okay. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to give that person some extra care and consideration. And it's funny that has absolutely nothing to do with flying an airplane full of people from Baltimore to Miami right. or vice versa. But it's imperative because if I have a situation, I know my team and who I'm working with. And I know what may be going on. And it sounds completely unrelated, but it's important. And we all are really good at compartmentalizing when we do get into a situation where there is an emergency or there's something that's timed critical. And we, we put on a game face, there's no right. question. But before that, if it's something that isn't, it's just like maybe it's a customer issue where someone's causing a stink about something, then I know that this person I'm, I'm dealing with has got something else on their mind. And maybe, you know, I, they may need some backup or some assistance if, if asked for. So it seems like too, I hope that's a, not the longest no, answer to the I silliest think, question, you know? No, I mean, it sounds like the communication component and, and empathy, it sounds like are the things that um, you just described. And I'm, and I think too, as the captain, I suspect you're setting the tone there too, right? By, it's by, incredibly important. Yeah, it's it's everything, and I I have to empower the people I work with by not getting in their way. Everybody wants to do a good job, and when you're with a great group of people who are working really hard, and I thrive on watching folks succeed. They don't need me to tell them how to do their job as a flight attendant, as a first officer, as a a ramp agent loading an aircraft. I did that and I wouldn't want a captain walking down the jetway stairs and saying, hey, you're supposed to put the blue bags on the top and the gray bags on the bottom. No, I'm not gonna micromanage that. I want that person to succeed because if I give them enough latitude to do their job, they're gonna do well. And if they need my help, I'm there for them. And that's what I always say, hey, do you guys need anything before we get going? Is there any backup, any assistance, anything I can do to make your life easier? Let me know. Yeah. And so then it's just there. And it's, and it's simple because then they know I'm caring and I hope they know I'm caring. And then, uh, cause it's for real, cause they're directly responsible for if you're going to come back and fly us again. Yeah. I have no touch point to the customer aside from standing in the cockpit door saying good morning or good afternoon, or thanks for flying. Nothing. Right. I have nothing. Right. It's my flight attendants. It's, it's the gate agent. Yeah. You know, that's where that's everything. You mentioned, I have two more questions, but you mentioned being, doing a lot of teaching now. I mean, you've always been teaching, but you're more senior in your career now. I'm curious mm-hmm. within the pilot life and navigating that career, and if you were to articulate what are some critical success success factors for people to get promoted or for people to move up mm-hmm. in seniority within a, a pilot's career, what would you talk about? What are those critical success factors? Good question. So one of the great things about being an airline pilot is that all of your promotions, all of your raises, all of your being able to fly better routes or better equipment or better schedules is all just based on a date of hire. So someone who could be very charismatic and someone to be very caring and be very technically savvy, they're not going to get promoted, at least in commercial and and airline flying uh, above someone else who may be ahead of them. It's Hmm. a very fair system and it keeps the politics out of it. However, going backwards, uh, let's say there's a young person who's interested in in learning how to fly. 
read everything you can on it. Talk to everybody you can uh, about it. Go to the airport, and it's something we're talking about. There's a, a group of, of, of pilots locally that are my age, and we're trying to find a way to get that kid that I was in 1980-something from the airport fence into the airplane in a safe and comfortable and realistic fashion. Because now the fences of the airports are really tall. And yeah. whereas when I was a kid, you could ride your bike up to yeah. you know the airport and walk out there and there'd be some guy like me be like, hey kid, you wanna take a look at the airplane? You wanna yeah. kick around or whatever? And and so making, just putting yourself out there to, to be available to, to learning, I think that's the biggest part of it. And then someone who's starting out in the career, and I've been very fortunate. My career has been been blessed by a lot of really great people that have helped me out in good timing and good fortune. And I'm, I'm very lucky in that regard. But I, I know that there are thousands of people in my shoes that want to help out people who are starting out. And that, that mentoring and, and that ability to say, hey, what can I do to help you? Here's what it looks like towards the tail end of your career. I know there's some speed bumps along the way, just expect them. But just keep going. Just, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's flying through that bumpy air. It's that, yeah. you know, it's, if you, if you just enter a holding pattern in the bumps, it's going to stay bumpy. Yeah. You got to keep going. Yeah. You know, you got to keep going. And then my last question is around young Rob, young, young Rob. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> is there anything that you would share with young Rob in terms of your advice and counsel that would help him have an easier time of it, right? Is there anything that you've learned based on your experience now, you know, life experience, professional experience that looking back, mm-hmm. you might say, hey, young Rob, let me, let's sit down <laughs> and have a cup of Joe. <laughs> let me share my wisdom with you. Oh my gosh. I, I think every teacher who met young Rob growing up would have probably said the same thing that I'm going to say, which is, do your homework. I mean, I just, <laughs> all joking aside. No, um, <laughs> let's see. So I was always fascinated in things I was interested in and I was disinterested in stuff that I was disinterested in, like most people are. I mean, right. you know, if I was, I was interested in a, a physics class. I had a great physics teacher in high school and I was interested in math because I had a great math teacher, but, you know, I, I may not have been as interested in, an English teacher and, and, and stuff like that. So if I was to sit down with, you know, your, your teenage mm-hmm. Rob that was trying to find his way, I would say, just do the work. And I know that sounds really obvious and just really simple, but just do the work because the amount of time that it would take to not do the work and something I was disinterested in, yeah. uh, then I would just cause more work later on. Okay. Now that's that's easy to say as a guy approaching fifty on the crescendo of his career, um, but you know it's funny because I watch our son and how hard he works and how diligent he is and how dedicated he is, and I, and I know he gets that from my wife, and I'm 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 blown away at how hard these kids work, and it's something that I didn't do. I, I just took stuff for granted, and stuff kind of came easy. Um, I looking back, I would have told myself to just you know, hey, you know, do the summer reading. Don't, right. you know, don't blow it off. Yeah. Because now what's, what's fascinating to me is that the stuff that I like to do, it's the same as I was when I was a kid. It's fun. I knock it out. But the stuff that I'm like, oh, I'm dreading, I've got to go through and review this stuff about 
this topic right. work related. It's not that much fun. Oh, I, I'm still a procrastinator. I'm still, it's still back to 11th grade summer reading where I'm waiting until the dead last moment to try to jam it out. I promise nothing technical safety related. Right. It's all just all the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's such good advice. I, you know, I have this theory and it's not based on any facts, but my theory is that eventually in order to succeed or in order to have fulfillment, you can't circumvent the work or the hard things that aren't of interest to you. And I think right. I think we all have different starting points where that may be more difficult than others, right? And, and you know, in my situation, I, I was in a pretty dysfunctional house and so it was very distracting. And so my sort of medicine for that was to be so connected to my friends and so social. And that's really where I found my place and I wasn't as focused on the academics. And I, I think there was a lot baked into that around concentration, but also feeling like maybe I couldn't do it, not really having anyone there sort of saying, let me spend time with you and let me show you how to do it, yeah. right? But yeah. but at some point, <laughs> you you know, that runs out and you have to you have to sort of be in the discomfort of the learning if that doesn't come super mm-hmm. easy to you, like especially in the academic space or in, in the social space, like if you're really not comfortable, you've got to put yourself out there and grow those mm-hmm. skills. Like this is all about developing this kind of whole self, right? That has all these different dimensions. And I feel like if you are someone that wants to move forward and press forward and and have some success, whatever you define that to be, you, you just can't hide from it forever. Like at some point it comes back around and you 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 need to learn how to do it and kind of make make up. I for couldn't it. couldn't agree more. And it's funny because I was thinking about this analogy is I was I was telling my fifteen year old self or sixteen year old yeah. self to do the summer reading to and I had great teachers. It wasn't right. it, it wasn't bad. It just was like, uh, I can I can coast. So let me take that to my my profession. If all I wanted to do was learn how to take off and land, right? That'd be cool. But you have to learn these other maneuvers in the aircraft or else like, okay, this guy is a pilot, but he doesn't know how to turn. Or this guy is a pilot and he doesn't know how to fly in the weather. Um, okay, that's, you can't really be proficient if you don't know how to do the other stuff. So the stuff that may be uncomfortable there's a reason behind it and there's growth that takes place in addressing that. And so, you know, I think about like, there were some things I learned as a a brand new kid student pilot that I didn't want to do. You know, I, the first couple of times I went up in a little airplane, I was nauseous and I was like, oh man, this is really bad. I, this is something I've wanted to do since I was, you know, five years old. And now I'm, I'm feeling like a little queasy and, you know, having to do turns and all this stuff that, you know, I wasn't comfortable with because I'd never done them. And if I didn't do that work, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you right now. And you right. have to sometimes deal with the discomfort and deal with the the stuff that you don't want to do. And again, it's easy to say that as a as a person looking at that. But if you know, if I was to go out and decided, okay, tomorrow I'm gonna you know start training for a marathon. I'm not gonna go out and run 26 miles tomorrow. I'm gonna start building up those base miles and start doing that. And then to get to that point where I can get across the finish line. I thought there was this pipeline and I thought that that's the one way I had to do it. And then if that didn't work out as planned that I was done, but I think that's where I grew and that's where I think the opportunities happened. And it's interesting because every now and then I fly with people who started out as a young aviator, took the path that I wanted to take through the military and end up um, 
working with me as a first officer and they're like, wow, you didn't finish mm -hmm. college? You didn't do this? You didn't do that? And I'm like, no, but I just kept saying yes to opportunities. And I think that's what is critical for me to share with people. And I, if I could go back and, and tell young Rob something, I'd probably say just, just don't be discouraged when the doors close because you just turn around, there's another one's going to open. You just got to keep looking, you know? And that's, that's really, and do your homework, but yeah. <laughs> I think that stick-to-itiveness, right? Of like, I, I will not yeah. be deterred. Like I, I will, I will fight for this because I believe mm -hmm. it's, it's my, right. not to be too corny, right? But it's kind of my destiny or it's, it's like what yeah. I'm meant to do um, for yeah, sure. Yeah, it's what I want to do. Yeah. And there's, there's so many opportunities for failure in, yeah. in commercial aviation, in life. And, and it's, it's up to us to, to say, okay, that that looks pretty bad and that sounds pretty crummy, but um, okay, we're going to deal with this. Right. We we're going to get, a, we'll get yeah, through this. For yeah. Sure. We'll get through this. So, yeah. Well, I thank you so much for doing this. It was a pleasure. I love seeing you. Oh my I gosh, this is so much fun. You. Thank you, Rob. I had such a great time talking to you. You gave us such great advice. Work hard and learn about everything, even if it doesn't wow you at the time. Do that homework. <laughs> Follow your passions. Be kind and ask good questions. And that very important, all important pause. Making sure that you wait for the answer. Thank you, Missy, for producing this episode, and thank you to our relatable community and listeners. We're so thankful for your support and listenership. If you get a moment, please subscribe to Relatable. Rate us and leave comments. We can be found on your favorite listening platform. Relatable is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates. You can follow us on Twitter and the TFA Facebook page. Until next time, this is Teresa Freeman with Relatable. Stay connected.